what is the book of Romans? We've been calling it basic Christianity, and we've been doing that for a reason. The reason is this. It's because Paul's letter to the Romans lays out the basics, right, the fundamental core. It lays down the groundwork, whatever language you want to use. It lays out the basics of what it is followers in Jesus believe. In other words, it's laying out the basic doctrines and teachings of Christianity. So if you're in here and you're wondering, what is it that Christians believe? I would argue there is no better book of the Bible to read than the book of Romans. And we've seen so far in our study, we've only made it through chapter one and we're in week four, but we've seen only in chapter one that Paul's basic message is to lay out two themes. And these are two themes that he's going to return back to throughout the entire book of Romans, throughout 16 chapters. And the first is the gospel or the good news of who Jesus Christ is. And Paul actually lays out what the gospel is at the very front so that we're under no false notions about what this good news or good announcement that Paul brings. He says it's this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For in it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is Paul's gospel message, his good news. It's the message that Jesus, God's son who became man, lived a perfect, righteous life. And through faith and trust in Jesus, not only can we be forgiven of sins because of his death on the cross, but we can be credited the righteous, perfect life that he lived in our place. And we've been calling this the great exchange, right? That means that on the cross, when Jesus died, an exchange happened. Our sin, our guilt, our rebellion against God was credited to Jesus, And he died the death that we deserved. But then also, through faith in him, a righteousness that we could not earn based on our own good works was then credited to us. It's a great exchange. So that's the good news, right? And that's Paul giving it to us in very concrete, kind of consolidated form in verses 16 through 17. But he also says alongside this good news is his second theme, and that's the bad news. This is the bad news we talked about two weeks ago. And the bad news is this. It's that God's wrath is also revealed against all human unrighteousness. So in other words, we need the righteousness of Jesus because God's wrath is being revealed on our unrighteousness. Those are Paul's two main themes that he's unpacking throughout Romans. But ask yourself this question. Why is Paul writing to Rome? Why does he want to write to these people specifically? After all, he didn't know this church in Rome. He never visited this church in Rome. So why them? In fact, why them? Because they're Christians. They're followers of Jesus. We read in uh, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 7, this was week 1, that Paul was writing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So they're beloved by God. They're followers of Jesus. So why do they need this message? Why do they need to be reminded of basic Christianity? Well, you have to realize this, that when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he's writing to two audiences. On the one hand, he's writing primarily that we saw in week two in the bad news on unrighteous people. He was writing primarily to this group. It's a group known as Gentiles. 
And Gentiles were those who were not Jewish. They were those who couldn't trace their lineage back to Abraham, who was a figure in the Old Testament. So he's writing primarily to this Gentile audience in week two when we, when we read together. And he said, God's wrath is presently being revealed against the Gentiles because they've exchanged God's truth for lies. They've exchanged God for idols. They've exchanged God's natural sexual order for their own sexual immorality. And they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And here's the thing. Paul points this out, but it didn't take Paul to point this out. In fact, even Roman people, other Gentiles, were pointing out this very fact about Gentiles in Rome. Seneca, he was a historian who lived during the first century. He was actually a contemporary of Paul's. He writes about Gentiles in Rome, and Rome specifically. He said, Rome is, quote, a filthy sewer of human virtue. Meaning, even the virtuous things that the people in Rome do is a filthy sewer. You can't even imagine what their vices were, right? The empress, her name was Messalina. She was married to uh, uh, Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome. She was even said to have always at night, around 3 a.m., sneak out under the cloak of darkness and go to a local brothel where she would disguise herself as a prostitute in order to engage her se- in, in, in order to indulge her sexual immorality. This is the empress. This is the empress of Rome who's engaging in these things. So there was no, no person who did not know about the filthy, unrighteous, horrible, ungodly things that were going on in Rome during that time. And Paul says God's wrath is revealed on the unrighteousness of Gentiles who are walking away from God. But there's a second audience that Paul's concerned with, and that is Jewish Christians. These are people who didn't reject God's truth. In fact, they had God's law. They had the Ten Commandments given by Moses, right? They had the Old Testament. They knew God's truth and righteousness, and they saw themselves as morally upright, religious, righteous people before God. Therefore, they thought that they were exempt from the wrath of God. And they began to view themselves with kind of this outward superiority and self-righteousness, especially among the Gentile Christians who were in the church in Rome. And when they would have heard Paul's bad news for the Gentiles, they would have been like, yes, finally, finally somebody brings the hammer down on those unrighteous people. Finally, somebody's speaking out about their idolatry. Finally, somebody's speaking out against their depraved sexual practices and against their lawlessness. You get them, Paul. But here's the thing about Paul is he's an equal opportunity offender. So what he's going to say is it's not just bad news of God's wrath for the Gentiles. It's also God's bad news of wrath for the Jewish Christians as well. That whether you're morally debauched or morally upright, God's perfection brings us all under the wrath of God. And we see this going on in Rome, this kind of two-tiered system, right? And this is a threat not only in the first century, but it's always a threat throughout history. That there are always those who see themselves as morally superior over against those who are morally inferior. Those who are morally righteous over against those who are morally unrighteous. 
And Paul wants to highlight here that the bad news of God's wrath is not just for the outwardly unrighteous, but for the Jews as well, who had become inwardly self-righteous. So, because this is the Jews, because of their law-keeping, their judgment of others, and their thought that they would escape God's verdict of wrath on unrighteousness, Paul is going to remind them of the perfection of God, the perfection of God's law, despite their hypocrisy, the perfection of God's judgment, and the perfection of God's verdict in order to humble them under the wrath of God and show them their need for the grace of God. So Paul begins. He addresses this Jewish audience, and we see this as we turn into Romans chapter 2, as Paul begins this chapter. And he says this, Therefore, speaking to the Jewish audience, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So you see what Paul is saying, that this judgmental self-righteousness of the Jewish Christians cannot withstand the perfect demands of God's justice. In fact, their judgment of others actually brings condemnation back on themselves. And we have to realize that this is not just a first century problem, but this is a 21st century problem because it's always been a problem throughout the church to create a two-tiered system. And we have to realize this. In fact, the Barna Research Group, they're a research group who does surveys of Christian congregation and Christian people. And then they actually did a survey recently where they were asking uh, 19 to 29-year-olds about their perception of Christians, and this was from 19 to 29-year-olds who were not in the church. And when asked, what are your main perceptions of Christians, their response was this. 91% of them said that Christians are anti-homosexual. 87% that Christians are judgmental. 85% Christians are hypocritical. 78% of these millennials said that they are out, Christians are out of touch with reality. that Christians are too political. And 70% said that Christians are insensitive to the faults of others. Now, to be sure, right, sometimes perceptions don't always meet reality, right? It is possible to speak about homosexuality in such a way with compassion and love and empathy and a forbearance towards people that you're actually not being anti the person. You are actually trying to address their compassion. That's possible. And to be sure, it also is possible, right, to remind people of God's truth and God's standard and God's justice and his law and also do so in a way that is not hypocritical and that is not judgmental of other people. But we have to be honest that we as Christians can be very quick to judge others, but also bring that same standard to a lower bar when it comes to ourselves. So for instance, we are very quick oftentimes to denounce the politician who didn't keep his promises or who lied under oath. And We're very quick to denounce the actress who is promiscuous or the hatred of a uniformed official or the hatred of a protester. And we're quick to point those out while at the same time being very slow to acknowledge the fact that we don't keep our promises and that we support a candidate who might not keep his promises either. Or that we're quick to click on the link with that 
uh, promiscuous actress. Or that we're quick to hate the uniformed official and protester for their perceived hatred. See, we all know the word for this, right? It's the H word, hypocrisy. We know the H word. That is hypocrisy being knowing the difference between right and wrong and holding other people to that standard while we, in our private life, actually do that very same activity. And the thing is, is when you're a religious person or you're a spiritual person, what we can actually do is use language even to cover up our own hypocrisy, right? And so our own hypocrisy actually doesn't seem quite as serious to us. So we say things like, did you, did you see the Super Bowl halftime show this year? It is getting so debauched. I almost turned it off three times. <laughs> it's just getting terrible. More and more lewd. Man, I tell you next year, I, I, might, I might turn it off this time. Might? You might turn it off? Almost three times? Right? We can subtly entrench ourselves in a sense of self-superiority, even though we're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. And the result is the same, right? Just because you know the right thing and you know what God would have you to do doesn't mean you're exempt from actually doing it. And for Paul's Jewish audience, it was a similar way of thinking. They believed we have God's law. We know God's law. We know right and wrong. Therefore, God's not going to hold us to his perfect standard of judgment. There's going to be some exemptions in there. So Paul, in response, gives a rhetorical question in verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Why would you think that? Why is that? Why do you think you're exempt from the perfect law of God? Jerry Bridges, he's an author. He wrote a book entitled Respectable Sins, where he kind of mocks and caricatures this idea that uh, as Christians especially, we can take on this hypocritical form and overlook our own sins while condemning the sins of others. He said the problem is this. The problem of the hypocritical mindset is that it redefines the concept of sin. The hypocritical concept of sin only covers the obvious gross sins of society while making the awareness of personal sin effectively disappear from our conscience. That's our problem, isn't it? That's a good definition of hypocrisy. It's the redefinition of sin. It's the exaggerating of the sins of those people while deflating and diminishing and excusing our own sins and constantly overlooking our own sins. So we can constantly overlook our respectable sins like ungratefulness, pride, selfishness, impatience, irritability, anger, gossip, these respectable sins. Because they're not as big or as heinous of sins. But Paul says here, don't you realize what you're doing? Remember what Paul Remember what Paul said about the sins of the Gentiles? He said, they rejected God's truth for a lie. They rejected God for an idol. Paul is saying, you are doing the same thing. See, when you judge others, you are exchanging God's perfect truth, his perfect law, for a law that overlooks your own sin and puts the moral bar lower. And not only that, it, you're also committing idolatry. 
Meaning you're exchanging God for a fake God. Because what you're doing is you're standing in the place of God and judging others and condemning others for their sin. Something that God only has the prerogative to do. That's why Paul begins chapter 2 with the word therefore. Meaning, I am giving you the conclusion of my argument. They thought it was all about the Gentiles, but Paul is saying, no, no, no. This is about you Jews as well. You exchange God's truth for a lie. You don't live by God's law, and you stand in God's place and judge others accordingly. And, you know, a natural response for a Jew in the congregation would be, yeah, but God is actively pouring out his wrath on on the Gentiles right now. God must be okay with us because life's going good with us. We're not engaging in that behavior, so therefore God must have a good thing for us. And Paul says, hold on, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, we presume, well, God is kind to me. God is patient toward me, therefore I must be good, I must be all right, right? God's not presently pouring out his wrath on me, so therefore I must be all right, I must be in the good with God. And this is how religions operate, isn't it? Even a distorted Christian religion, we can quickly think that, well, because I do good, God will do good to me. Or I do right, so God will be kind to me. I did X, therefore God does Y. I do this, God will be patient and overlook my sin. This is a good relationship we have with God. Everybody wants this God, right? But Paul says here, no. That is not religion. That is not true spirituality. That is presumption. You are presuming on the grace and kindness of God taking it to mean that you are spiritually healthy, but Paul says it's actually the opposite, that you are actually in need of repentance. God sometimes gives us good things, demonstrates his wrath on others, so that we might realize I don't deserve these good things, and I actually deserve the wrath that's being poured out on others. That's what repentance is. It's the reminder that we're not in the right God is. We're in the wrong. We need to turn back to God and away from our sin. See, the Jewish people, they saw the Gentiles punished and thought, we're good. But the reality is they should have seen the Gentiles punish and said, God, forgive me. So Paul continues in verse 5. He says, if you think God will not judge your hypocrisy, if you think God will always be patient and kind, if you think you don't need Jesus' righteousness and forgiveness because you're a good person, Then verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. See, we all think because God's not punishing me now, surely he's not going to punish me in the future. Paul says, no, no, no. What you're actually doing is you're storing up wrath. That's actually a banking term. And I actually like the way that the King James Version translates it. It translates it treasuring up. The idea is we're making deposits into an account that will one day be withdrawn in full. So what Paul is saying is every time you sin and you do not repent and you think because God's not punishing you, what you're doing is you're depositing into an account of God's wrath that's being stored up and gaining more and more interest as time goes on. So you think when you 
have your paycheck, you set aside 10% and it's just going into your savings account, right? And building up, building up, building up until one day when somebody hits your car, you can withdraw it in full. God is saying a day is coming when he will withdraw his wrath in full for all those who didn't repent and believe in Jesus. So God's perfect law, his demand for perfection according to his law shows all people, Jew and Gentile, that we all stand condemned. Maybe we're not experiencing it now, but a day is coming when he will show it in full. Do you see that? And unless we repent, what Paul is saying is we're storing up wrath because God's righteous judgment will one day be revealed. So what will that judgment look like? What's the perfect judgment of God going to look like? Well, we saw in verses 1 and 5, Paul showed the perfection of God's law. Verses 6 through 24, he shows us the perfection of God's judgment. And he begins in verse 6. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. They will, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no, impartiality, or no, shows no partiality. So see, Paul's Jewish audience thought, that God did show partiality, didn't they? That because the Jewish people did not commit as many sins or as flagrant of sins as those Gentiles, that somehow God would be partial in judgment for their sins. But we all realize that no justice, no standard of justice works that way. Even a secular form of justice doesn't work that way. When you go into the courts and say, you're you know, accused of having murdered your wife and you're found guilty and right before the judge is about to bring down the gavel and pronounce you guilty, nobody stands a chance if they say, well, yeah, but I didn't commit as murder, murder as many times as Ted Bundy. Nobody gets off on that, right? Whether you murder somebody once or seven times, the standard's still the same, murder, guilty, prison. And why would we think God's standard of justice would be any different? Just because we don't commit as many sins as those people over there, we don't do it, you know, in the daylight as those people so unabashedly do over there, then somehow we think this is going to work in God's divine scheme. It doesn't work that way, Paul says. No, Paul says in a secular court it doesn't work that way, let alone God's divine court. He says we're kind of like swimmers, okay? Now, I'm a terrible, terrible swimmer. I can't stay above water for more than like five minutes. One time I tried to, you know, just float there, for as long as I could, I think I made four minutes and eight seconds. Okay, I'm terrible. My wife is an excellent swimmer. She swam in high school. Some of you might be even better swimmers than my wife. Now, say we go down to California, right? We go to Los Angeles, and it's our objective and goal. We're going to swim all the way to Japan. Now, I'm going to last five minutes. Okay, we all know that. I'm sinking. I'm at the bottom, right? I'm fish food. Some of you, like my wife, you might make it five hours, Right? You can float on your back, do that thing. But ultimately, you're fish food too. Then what about you that are like triathlon swimmers? Fish food. What's the point? We're all fish food. Right? There's a standard God calls us to, a judgment that's perfect, and we all 
fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, but I'm a good swimmer. <laughs> so? You're still down at the bottom of the Pacific. And some people are more moral than others. Yes. But no person's morality and good behavior and religious observance will make them good enough to stand before God's perfect judgment. Because God's judgment's perfect. And his law is perfect. And now I can imagine some of you are thinking, so wait, are you saying God demands perfection from us? I mean, we're imperfect creatures. How can God demand perfection from us? And after all, I try my best, so how come God won't take that into account? Well, let me first answer one of your questions with a question, and it's this. Do you really try your best? Do you always try your best every single day, every single hour, every single minute of every single day? Do you really try your best? Paul says, here's the standard, right? He said, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So let me ask you, have you sought every single day living for the glory of God in well-doing, without self-interest, always and constantly for the glory of God in your thoughts, in your deeds, and in your intentions? If you're anything like me, now there might be some perfect people in here. If, if that's you, I'm sorry, this sermon doesn't concern you. But if you're anything like me, you know that's just not a reality, right? Even in my ministry, I'm self-seeking. You know, I'd like to think that I put together sermons and I pray for people and I counsel people and I teach people for their benefit exclusively and for God's glory. But in all honesty, a lot of it is for my own self-satisfaction, my own self-glory, my own self-promotion. Even in my family, right? We have two 11-month-old twins. When they start crying at 3 a.m., I do what every guy does, right? I roll over and I pretend like I'm sleeping. <laughs> so my wife has to go and get them. Why? Because I'm self-seeking. I don't stand up to the perfection of God's law or the perfection of God's judgment. So do you really give it your best shot? And then the second question is, does God permit for perfection? Well, the answer is yes. God is calling us to perfection. And in fact, it's not just Paul who says that. It's Jesus himself in his most popular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God created us for moral, religious, obedient perfection to his law, to a T. God's judgment is perfect, meaning there is no partiality whatsoever. Paul continues, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You can kind of see what Paul's doing here, right? He's systematically dismantling any excuse a person could have before the judgment of God when he comes again to judge all flesh, right? A couple weeks ago, right, a Gentile could have reasonably said, well, hey, I never knew God. I didn't know God. I didn't know God existed. I didn't know he was around. He never revealed himself to me. Paul says, no, chapter 1, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to all people. For God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Well, I'm better than those people, though. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. But God is for me. He's good to me now, so he must be good in the future. Chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But we knew your law, God. We knew the difference between right and wrong. Verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're religious, whether you're irreligious, whether you're moral, whether you're immoral, whether you go to church, whether you don't go to church, no partiality, all will be judged by God's perfect law and his perfect judgment. And so God, or sorry, Paul begins to unpack what this judgment's going to look like. He starts with the, Gen the Gentiles. Sorry, I'm stuttering a little bit this morning. He starts with the Gentiles. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Right, a Gentile could have reasonably rose his hand, risen his hand and said, well, God, I didn't have your law. You gave it to the Jews, but I don't have the law, so how can you hold me accountable? God's going to say, according to Paul, no, you, you betray yourself. Because the very fact that you do good things some of the time shows this very fact that you're a standard to yourself and that God's law is actually inscribed on the human heart. That built into the human DNA is God's law and God's standard of right and wrong and good and bad. Every single person has it. And now, an objection could have been raised by one of Paul's audience members, and many people today, right, they would say, well, hold on, good and evil, right and wrong, those are just relative, right? If you have one culture over here, they define what's good and bad, and then people live in that culture appropriately, and they try and get their moral guidance from the culture. And then with culture B over here, same thing, they construct what is true, what is good, what is right, what is wrong, and then they live within that framework. You can't say that there's an absolute good and standard that is outside of us and outside cultures. Well, it's fascinating that actually anthropologists, and one recent study by Oxford anthropologists, are actually completely overturning that way of thinking. One anthropological study published just within the past few years did a survey, a longitudinal survey of people throughout times and places of 60 different societies, 60 different cultures, and they found that there's a common moral thread that ran throughout every single culture. In all 60 cultures, there was this sense of obligation and duty to respect and honor your family members and those in authority over you. There was also this common thread of protection of human life at all costs, a loyalty in relationships, especially the relationship of marriage, respect of property rights and individual goods, and then honesty, especially when under oath. You know what's fascinating about that is that just so happens to be the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments of God. And why is that? How is it that these cultures throughout time and place have this same moral framework? Well, it's because the law of God is written on the human heart. Oliver Scott Curry, he was the leading researcher on this study. 
He said that, quote, people everywhere face a similar set of social problems and use a similar set of moral rules to solve them. As, a, as predicted, these moral rules appear to be universal across cultures. Everyone everywhere shares a common moral code. In other words, we all know God's law. We all know the difference between right and wrong. One of my favorite books recently was a book published by, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, it's Budazuski, but he was a former philosopher and now he's a Christian philosopher. He actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on this philosophy called nihilism. Nihilism is basically the idea that there are no truths and falsehoods, there's no good and evil, and life is meaningless. Sounds good, you should go read about that. But here's what he wrote in one of his recent books. He said, one of the good things I've been given is a stronger than average mind from God. I don't make the observation to boast. Human beings have been given diverse gifts to serve him in different ways. The problem is that a strong mind that refuses to serve God has its own way of going wrong. When some people sin, they rob and kill. Others do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. I didn't do any of those things in my sin. My way of going astray and sinning was to get stupid. I thought it always came to a surprise to some intellectuals that there were some forms of stu stupidity that one must be highly informed and educated to achieve. That is how I wrote a doctoral dis dissertation claiming that there is no difference between good and evil and that we aren't responsible for what we do. I remember now that I taught these things to university students for 17 years. Now that's sin. It was also agony. You cannot imagine what a person has to do to himself to go on believing such nonsense. St. Paul says that God's law is written on our hearts. That means our minds cannot not know them. I was determined not to know them. Therefore, I had to destroy my mind. I had to become stupid. Now, that kind of makes me laugh, but it's true because God's law is written on our heart. And Paul says, you don't have to look to foreign cultures. You don't have to look to philosophers to figure this out. He actually says, your conscience bears witness against you. Every single one of us knows in our conscience, right, that we haven't sought good, but we've sought self-interest. When we look inside ourselves, we can see we don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's perfect standard. So Paul says when it comes to God's perfect judgment, he's not even going to need a prosecuting attorney. Our conscience will bear witness against us on that day. Our conscience is going to come out of us, go on the witness stand, and actually give a testimony to us. That's what he's saying. So Paul says that's what's going to happen for the Jewish person who doesn't have the law but has it written on their heart. Then he turns to the Jewish audience and he says, to them, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
So you see, Paul is saying, hey, because you think you're morally superior and you can keep my law and that you're going to be exempt from my judgment and you think you can teach other people by pointing out their sins, he links it back to verse 7 when he said you're supposed to honor God. He says, no, 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 you dishonor God. Those who do well and seek for glory and honor, they're the ones who honor God, but you don't. You dishonor God. Verse 24, though, he says, Jewish Christians... This is the sad fact. People are supposed to see you, the people of God, who are repentant in their sins, but instead they look at you and they blaspheme the name of God because of your hypocrisy. We're always prone to make this mistake. It wasn't just Jewish Christians now. It's us today. We have to make the same mistake that when we preach and teach and tell people about the perfection of God's law and the perfection of God's judgment, we shouldn't have a sense of inward superiority, but a deep sense of our own insufficiency, our own brokenness before God's perfection. I love the way Martin Luther put it. He's a 16th century theologian. He was a reformer. He said, the truly righteous person makes it a point to accuse themselves in thought, word, and deed, while the self-righteous always make it a point to accuse and judge others, if not outwardly, then in their hearts. See, the knowledge of God's perfection, his perfect law, his perfect judgment should not make us feel righteous, but profoundly unrighteous. I love the story of Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite authors, and she's a great short story writer. She wrote a short story entitled Revelation, and it's the story of a woman named Mrs. Turpin and her husband Claude. Claude has been kicked by a horse. It's a very comical story. Claude's been kicked by a horse. So they go to the doctor's office, and it's a packed hospital room and packed waiting room full of sick people. And we're kind of given into two dialogues going on in Flannery O'Connor's narrative. The first is the dialogue that Mrs. Turpin is having with the other patients in the room. And it's warm, it's casual, it's very light and airy, and she's a beautiful, you know, kind of southern uh, woman, so, you know, it's, it's very nice. But then we're given into another dialogue, and it's the dialogue going on in Mrs. Turpin's mind, where she's fiercely judging all the people around her. So she's judging everything, even the doctor's office. She thinks to herself, man, these doctors make a lot of money, yet they pack us in here like sardines. And then she looks at a woman who is definitely what she calls white trash. And she looks at her, she's kind of dirty, kind of uncouth. And this woman's looking at this new kind of jewelry that she has. And Miss Turpin thinks to herself, she should have used the money for that to buy herself a washcloth. And then she looks over at this girl who's reading a book entitled Human Development. It's a blue book. She's across the way. And she looks at her, she kind of has acne on her face, and she overhears her mother who's saying, yeah, she just got back from college. And Miss Turpin thinks to herself, well, college sure didn't give her any manners. And then all of a sudden, this, all this judgmentalism kind of reaches its head when she's talking to a woman who's next to her, and she starts saying to her, you know, I am just so grateful to God that he has made the world the way that it is, and that I could have been anybody else but me, and I could have been so many other bad people, but I'm, I'm just the best version of myself that I can be. Sometimes I just want to bust out and praise, praise Jesus. And as she opens her eyes, she sees a book being whirled at her face. It's a blue human development book that whacks her in the left eye, and she falls to the ground. And then next thing you know, this college student actually has her hands around Mrs. Turpin's throat. 
And as everybody in the doctor's office pull uh, Miss Turpin and the college student away from each other, they give Miss Turpin a, sed a sedative because she's in so much pain. And just as about, she's about to slip into unconsciousness, she looks at the college student and says, do you have something to say to me? And the college student looks back and replies, yes. Go back to hell where you came from, you old war hog. And here's the thing. Flannery O'Connor says in that moment, Mrs. Turpin received a revelation from God that what the college student said was true. That for all of her southern religiosity and baked biscuit goodness, she really at her core was an old war hog from hell. And the same thing is true when we as followers of Jesus look into the perfect law and the perfect judgment of God, all we should see is unrighteous warthogs. People who do not live up to God's standard, even though we know God's standard. That leads naturally to Paul's last point, which is the perfection of God's verdict. So he's shown us the perfection of God's law, the perfection of God's judgment, and the perfection of God's verdict is in chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. I'm not going to read the rest of chapter 2. You can go back and read that in the beginning parts of chapter 3. So I'll leave you to read that yourself. But in verse 9, chapter 3, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. See, the Jews thought, here are the categories. Jews over here, Gentiles over here, religious over here, unreligious over here, and that's how God's going to make his judgment. We're going to escape God's wrath. They're sinners. We're not. Paul says, no, there's one category, and that is all humankind is under sin. And here's the judgment. God's perfect verdict. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, an asp is a poisonous snake. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths, right? You just think of what trails behind a person. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody honors God. Nobody seeks God. What Paul's trying to point out here is that sin seeps in and affects everything every bit of the human person, right? It affects our morality. No one is righteous. It affects our mind. No one understands. It affects our, our, uh, our will. No one seeks for God. It affects our words, right? The venom of asps is under their lips, and their throat is like an open grave. The idea there is you have an open grave, dead bodies in it, that nobody's put dirt on. So just the reek of decay and death is coming forth from the human throat. Jew and Gentile alike. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and there's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul continues, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, God's perfect law, right? 
It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. What Paul means there is there's no excuse before God's law and we all stand condemned mouth shut on judgment day. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, not just the Gentiles, but Jew and Gentile alike. No partiality. See, what God's law was meant to do was it was meant to function like a mirror, right? Just as a mirror when you have blemishes or you have spinach in your teeth or whatever the case may be, just as a mirror exposes the truth and the reality that everybody else saw before, it finally exposes it to you for the very first time. But it also reflects not only our unrighteousness, our falling short of God's glory, it it displays God's perfection, God's perfect law, his perfect character, and his perfect judgment. So it reflects on us and it reflects on God. It's a lot like playing golf with Tiger Woods, right? You play golf with Tiger Woods, you're very aware of what your golf swing should look like, and it doesn't. And you're very aware that that looks good, what I'm doing looks more like Charles Barkley. If you've seen Charles Barkley swing a golf club, you know what I'm talking about. So why such bad news? Why is Paul giving such bad news? This is chapter one, bad news. Chapter two, bad news. Chapter three, bad news. Why such bad news, Paul? Well, in the words of D.A. Carson, he says you cannot come to the terms of the gospel, the good news, unless you come to terms with what the problem it is that the gospel, the good news, addresses. In other words, God shows us his perfect law, his perfect judgment, his perfect verdict, because it's like a mirror that exposes we are guilty, we are unrighteous, we are broken, therefore we have to look somewhere else, outside of ourselves, for one who is righteous, one who will bear our guilt, and one who will be broken in our behalf, namely, Jesus That God himself, the perfectly righteous God, provided in his son a perfect righteousness to meet his perfect standard so that we might be perfect before God. That is the gospel. And the sad thing is, is we do not want to believe that it's true. That we need a righteousness outside of ourselves because we regularly see ourselves as basically good, upright people. But it's only once you hit the bottom that you realize your need for help. Paul's bringing us to the bottom. I want to leave you with a quote by Tim Keller. He says, In the presence of light, you see darkness. In the presence of strength, you see weakness. But in the presence of God, that is the presence of his perfection, you see your need for grace. That is a gift that you could not achieve on your own. You see your need for Jesus. He's perfectly righteous and was perfectly condemned under the perfect verdict of God in your place and mine if we place our faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a lot of bad news. And... God, I confess that in my self-righteousness, I often think I don't need it. I don't need to hear this. But we thank you that you have given us your word that from your mouth proceeds the very bread of life, 
that we need to be nourished unto eternal life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing a righteousness that we could not provide for ourselves in sending your son Jesus to live in our place and die in our place. And God, we ask that by your spirit sent into our hearts that you would work faith in us and trust in us, not to trust in our own righteousness and also not to trust in our own failures to think that that's what's most true about us. But we would trust in Jesus and know that if we have faith in him, then you love us. We have no doubt that you've forgiven us. And we have no doubt that we're perfect and righteous before you. So we ask that you would work that faith in us to trust in Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.